0: Hello friends and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we get together every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right, it's the Business of Agriculture. I'm so glad you're joining me. Today we're going to talk about a topic that you might hate me at the end of this podcast over, but I don't think you will. You know I'm one of you. I'm a farm guy. I'm a farm owner. I'm an Indiana farm boy. I like corn. I like seeing a good field of corn. So you're probably saying, and you might bristle just a little bit when I tell you, we in the business of agriculture need to adjust to a world that needs less of it. That's right. In this entire discussion, we're going to discuss why there will be less corn. We're approaching spring, there's gonna be pictures and images all over social media of Plant 19. I know we get so excited about planting corn because it's what we do. About 90 million acres of it here, which is out of 360 million cropland acres or farmable acres, that's a lot of our uh, potential productive land that is devoted to corn. We grew about 15 uh, billion bushels of the stuff last year. So corn's very, very important, but I would assert and I've been telling my agricultural audiences for the last two years that we as an industry are going to have to adjust our thinking. It's not about how many bushels of corn we can produce. It's not even about how many bushels of corn we can figure out how to process or sell. Because the reality is the marketplace is going to dictate through its demand what our supply needs to be. And that's why there will be less corn. Now, I want you hear me out on this. And I want you again to realize that as much as I'm an ag econ, ag farm guy, I just look at this and see this is the next evolution in agriculture. On a global comparison, the United States already grows less corn. I know I've got friends and fans up in Canada that are listening to this. I can't give you the numbers on corn production in Canada, but I can give them to you for the United States of America. I just told you about 90 million acres, about 15 billion bushels. On a global comparison, America does less corn than we ever have. Only two decades or so ago, we produced two-thirds of the global corn output. Last year, it was about 35%. So we've gone from two-thirds to one-third of global corn output. Other countries during these last couple of decades have caught up on producing corn. Now, they still don't produce as much as we do, and they're not probably as efficient at it. And our bushels per acre are amazing, and we still have great technology and innovation that leads the way on a global scale. But During this time, when we went from two-thirds of the global corn output to one-third, we were still increasing our output. About 50% more corn being grown in the United States than there was just 20 or so years ago. So while we're growing a lot more corn on a percentage basis, on a global level comparison, it's much less. And that's fine. The rest of the world learned how to grow corn. I mean, these countries, you know, nine countries that have the word stand in them. Obviously, the Ukraine. You've got South America, mostly in Brazil and Argentina. Australia, India, you know, start naming the other places. And then, of course, there's China. China has now become the second biggest producer of corn on planet Earth. They've got a burgeoning middle class, 1.4 million people to feed. And they're running their corn mostly through pigs. Probably you knew this. Maybe you didn't. China produces five, they have a hog industry that is five times the size of our hog industry here in the United States. So think of that. We got states like Minnesota and Iowa and North Carolina that crank out the pigs, and we are still one fifth the size of corn production that China is. So China's growing uh, corn at a much bigger level than they ever did. And then, of course, they import soybeans to feed those pigs. Other countries, have gotten in on this. They view corn as a means to self-sufficiency, food independence, economic advancement, and they have learned to produce this product so that their people are better fed. But here's the thing. You're saying, Damian, this is all good. You sound like you're all about more corn. Well, I am, but I believe that we are absolutely as an industry hitting a level now that we can't continue to use all of our supply. And I'm going to tell you why. The headwinds for corn really are in three big categories. Now, we can talk about population because the uh, the American agriculture has been going on this feed the world thing for a, you know two, three, four, five decades, feed, since the 1950s, feed the world. I'm going to talk about this in another column and another podcast because there's a lot of evidence now that we're not going to hit all those big population projections, and I've been talking about that for five years on the circuit. I want to talk about these three big headwinds in particular that are going to change the de- the demand, and in fact, decreased demand for corn. So while we love yellow two, you know, yellow number two, yellow corn, we produce the heck out of it and we're good at it. There's just going to be less demand for that. And I'm gonna bring it down to three categories specifically where I see demand decreasing, and they are ethanol, human food, and livestock feed. So let's go ahead and talk about ethanol. We love the industry of ethanol. I know it was coming in big in the early 2000s when I owned my first farm in Wells County, Indiana. There was uh, a group of investor farmers that put their money in to put the first ethanol plant in. There are two ethanol plants currently from uh, about 25 miles, within 25 miles of my farm in Huntington, Indiana. So ethanol's been a good boom for ag. But the demand for ethanol, some would say, our detractors, is really propped up through subsidies and through the Renewable Fuel Standard. It was signed into law in 2005 under President Bush. So our detractors, and trust me, there are many that do not believe that their tax dollars should be in any way subsidizing ethanol or corn in general, and they point to the economics of it not really working. You know, there's the old uh, comparison, you'll hear this if you listen to reports from the CME group or uh, agricultural economists that at a certain price point, ethanol doesn't make any sense. And I'm talking about like gasoline prices. So if you've got high gas prices, therefore ethanol can be making more money and low corn prices, it makes sense. But when gas prices are say floating around $2.29 or whatever they might be right now, or when you listen to this podcast, it maybe doesn't make as much sense. There sits corn at what, 350 dollars dollars or whatever their, their purchase price was at the ethanol plants. It's a squeeze. Last article I read said ethanol is not making any money. So if ethanol is not not making any money right now, will it ever? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons, though, beyond just the economics that are serious headwinds for ethanol. There's the political part of it. And this is not just the detractors that, uh, that want to be against Monsanto or want to be against modern agriculture or want to not have an ethanol plant down the road from them. There's those detractors, we know. But there's a political reality, a societal reality. It's much bigger looming challenge for ethanol than the economics. I believe that is electric cars and a push for environmentalism. Now some of you are going to say, Damien, ethanol is amazing for the environment. Because of ethanol, we're not burning all that dirty gas and digging up all that crude oil. Yes, I agree. But I'm talking about environmentalism that wants to not even have an internal combustion engine. For European countries, have now legislatively banned the internal combustion engine. Now, whether they'll be able to accomplish this with big trucks becomes a little bit of a question because big old semis and delivery trucks struggle and we haven't got a viable, efficient, practical electric semi or panel delivery truck of any size. But even if you keep diesel around for them, that does ethanol no good. There is no ethanol that works for diesel engines. And you can say, well, there's soy diesel, biodiesel. I get that. But we still burn through a ton of our global oil through cars, meaning internal combustion engines, cars and pickup trucks like you and I drive. Whether it's an F-150 or a a Nissan Altima, that's where we burn through a lot of our fossil fuel. So if ethanol is facing this onslaught of electric cars and you're saying, Dave, that's a long way off. You make jokes about Priuses. Yes, I do. And I don't necessarily want to own a Prius, but I will tell you that electric cars are coming whether it's Tesla and its battery technology that is allegedly right around the corner. Now, we know Elon Musk gets a little ahead of himself sometimes, and he's got this battery plant in Reno, Nevada. It's propped up with government subsidies. However, there is compelling evidence that if they can get this battery thing figured out, instead of having a 220-mile distance with your electric car, now it's 1,000 or 2,000, the electric automobile becomes a great deal more, shall we say, viable. Also, the government is going to scale back probably some of its subsidies to buy electric cars as they become more easily produced, more efficiently produced, and more common. I'm not going to probably be the first one to go and buy an electric car. You won't either, but it doesn't matter. We've got a whole bunch of cars on the road here. Last I looked, I think it's like 270 million cars on the road in the United States of America. We sell about 17 million per year. So right now, it's only a few percent, two to five percent that are electric. But this number is growing because they actually are starting to become more of a commodity. They're being more of an actual production unit. Electric cars and the legislative bands in Europe tell me that we're going to struggle with ethanol, not just because of the economics, but because of the political Headwinds on the environmentalism. If the people want electric vehicles and they want there to be driverless electric vehicles, where does that leave ethanol? Give you one other thought on ethanol. As fuel consumption declines, which it will, when we have uh, shared rides, most of the population lives in urban centers, a lot of the millennials don't even buy cars, the post millennials don't even own cars. My niece is staying here with me and she's in Chicago. What use does she have for a car? So you've got less consumer demand for oil if they're living in large cities and they're doing public transit and, and shared rides, all this kind of thing. But more importantly, as fuel consumption declines, which it will, how do you believe Exxon or Royal Dutch Shell are going to respond? These companies exist to sell fossil fuel. That's what they do. So do you suppose that these large multinational oil companies that can pump uh, in Gulf of Mexico and spill, spew oil out there for several months and still pay for the environmental lawsuits and degradation and still exist as a company. They can wreck their tankers off the coast of Alaska go through all the lawsuits and the fines and still emerge because they're somewhat oligopolistic, multinational corporations. Do you think they're going to let Iowa corn farmers put them out of business by taking a bigger share of the fuel sales? If fuel sales globally are going down because we are have more electric cars and less need for the fuel, and then the the, the cars that we do have get more and more efficient, we've got declining fuel sales. Do you think these large corporations are going to lose out to Iowa corn farmers? Doubtful. And then there's the question of the Middle East. Let's take Saudi Arabia, whose entire power and wealth lies in its oil. Do you believe the Saudis are going to sit idly by and let Illinois and Nebraska and Minnesota and Indiana corn farmers... Bankrupt them as a country? Let them lose their cling to power and wealth that they have? Of course not. They'll just pump more oil, sell it more cheaply, knowing that that economically makes ethanol unviable. In all of these scenarios, ethanol loses. Now let's talk about processed food. Grocery stores are struggling in the center store. And if you're not familiar with grocery, I am only because I've done so many speeches in orga- to organizations that are food processors and, and grocery minded, uh, you know, organizations, whether it's meat or canned goods or whatnot. Center store is where all that processed food sits on the shelf. Stuff that comes in boxes and cans. Particularly the stuff that's in boxes is declining rapidly. Consumers are switching off of the packaged food and going to fresher alternatives, What they call then in the perimeter, where you get the vegetables and the produce aisle and the meats and all those kinds of things. Kraft Heinz, if you hadn't keep up, Kraft Heinz, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, that's why I keep up, I happen to own a little bit of stock in Berkshire Hathaway. From <laughs> Kraft Heinz, Kraft Heinz shares plummeted 30% last month, 30% because, oh, they had some problems. They had some uh, institutional problems, and they had some product problems, and some promotional problems. You know what, they have problems because Kraft Heinz sells processed foods. And you're saying, what does this have to do with corn? Where do you think a lot of our corn that doesn't go to animals and doesn't go to ethanol ends up? Well, some of it ends up in boxes. All those kinds of packaged foods that uh, contain a lot of hard to pronounce additives have a corn as their base. Those sales are declining rapidly. Last article I read said that Center Store is dropping like three to four percent of sales annually. Let's talk about cereal. While we know that there's not a lot of corn that goes into a box of cornflakes, it's still a category. It's about a 10 billion dollar industry, but you know what? It's declining also. According to Food Dive, that's a website and a magazine for people in the grocery business, Cereal sales have decreased 17% from 2009 to 2016. Here we sit in 2019, and those declines are still happening. It's leveled off a bit. So there's less packaged food sales. And it's not just packaged food, folks. This is where corn has a little bit of an ongoing issue. It's beverage, too. About 6% of our corn is consumed via sweeteners and corn syrup. The bulk of that 6% is actually corn syrup. Yeah, there's still sweeteners, but the bulk of that 6% is corn syrup. Are you paying attention? I've been talking about this for several years. I was at a gym one time and they had a big uh poster on the wall talking about the evils of corn syrup. We've got one, Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you these numbers. I believe the number right now is we are at 9.4 to 9.6% of our U.S. population suffering from type 2 diabetes. We're at about 35 to 37% obese in the United States. Now, this is not me making any commentary. I'm just going to tell you that corn syrup is getting the blame. Right or wrong, corn syrup is vilified. You've seen the Bud Light commercials, right? It wasn't just a Super Bowl commercial. It wasn't just a one-time spot. They made an entire campaign. They're still airing commercials where they drag the barrel of corn syrup around and announce to the Miller Light Castle and to the Coors Light Castle that your corn syrup is here because Bud Light contains no corn syrup. Everybody got mad, went on social media. I saw the pictures on Twitter. Farmers dumping out their Bud Light in the sink. First off, why are you drinking Bud Light to begin with? (sighs) Come on, man. Coors Banquet's where it's at. Here's what you really got to consider though. Corn syrup is vilified. Corn syrup is the new tobacco. It's a legal product. It's used in a lot of places, but now it's blamed for a lot of ill health. Right or wrong, corn syrup is the new demon and it's the new tobacco. Bud Light didn't create this. Anheuser-Busch did not create this. Anheuser-Busch merely capitalized on it. I expect drastic decreases in corn syrup consumption because of these sort of headwinds that we're facing. Look at Seattle that instituted a big, huge tax on soft drinks. Where do you use a lot of corn syrup? Soft drinks. Chicago, San Francisco, Philadelphia, all big municipalities, large population centers that are taxing the heck out of soft drinks. And even in some of those places, you can't advertise soft drinks on public property because of the political winds on that. Why there'll be less corn? I just gave you the first two reasons, ethanol, was frankly a short-term solution to a long-term problem. We had too much corn. We got to figure out ways to use all this corn. We're great at making it. It's the old thing of, we're so good at making it, let's figure out how we can sell it. So we came up with ethanol. The biggest use of corn, though, is not ethanol, nor is it processed foods, although those are pretty substantial uses of it. And like I said, corn syrup and sweeteners. It's livestock feed. According to the National Corn Growers Association website, 38% of our corn crop... Walks off the farm, as they say, as meat, or is consumed by dairy cows to make milk. But you're gonna tell me, hey, the more affluent a culture becomes, Damien, you've told me this before, the more high up on the hog a China a Chinese person is, the better they eat. That's true. More meat, more milk, more cheese, more eggs. Because you know, if you were starving, and you finally had enough money because you got a better economy, and you got a better global economy, a more middle-class economy, you're going to eat better. That is true. But right now, 38% of our corn crop walks off the farm or is consumed by dairy cows to make milk. But this is going to continue to be, uh, while it's our biggest use, it's going to be our biggest challenge because the world of meat and milk is changing too. According to uh, Food Navigator, Plant based milk, and I use that with quotation marks because I'm a dairy farm kid and I drink the real thing whole milk with a tablespoon and a half of Nestle Quick and a little scoop of ice cream every morning, except for when I travel. You know how hard it is to find good chocolate milk when you travel? Ugh. Skim milk. Ugh. I know real milk. I drink real milk. But plant-based milk sales in the United States, and I'm talking about everything from cashews to almonds to soy milk to every other plant-based dairy product, because we know it's not really milk, are increasing in sales. Plant-based milk, quote marks, sales were up 9% last year in 2018. You know what's even bigger than that? Plant-based, quote, meat sales. and I'm talking about tofu hot dogs and, and veggie burgers and all this kind of thing. Plant-based meat sales increased 24% last year. Then we got things like grass-fed beef. Grass-fed beef is hugely popular. According to Supermarket News, it's growing about 25 to 30% annually as a category. Now, some of you diehards are going to say, Damien, corn is a grass. Yes, but for designations of grass-fed beef, if it's actually being non fraudulently marketed. If it's being ethically raised and marketed, grass-fed beef, as you know, means it was out there on a pasture eating grass, not corn. That category is growing. And then there's lab meat. Again, it's not really meat. It's petri dish protein. It is not yet commercially viable, nor is it available, but it is coming. And you know what? Lab-based meat does not require corn. Grass-fed beef does not require corn plant-based quote milk and plant-based quote meat do not require corn they might use some corn but generally they have a soy product or some other stuff i mean you start looking at the ingredients on this they're using all sorts of from tofu to which is a soybean product to all kinds of other things and it's not corn now lab meat I've had questions and I've seen, you've seen my stuff out here about lab meat. I'll be talking about it more. While I'm not a big proponent, nor am I going to eat it, I understand that it probably does have viability because, again, of environmental sensitivity. The consumer that says, I go meatless on Monday because I want to save the planet. Oh, I believe that cow farts, because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said cow farts are ruining the planet. Now we know that's ridiculous and we know she's got a kind of a loon. She has 3.5 million Twitter followers that believe what she says. And she doesn't know anything about climate change, nor does she know anything about modern agriculture. But this is the force that we're up against. These are political forces, and it's because of environmentalism, and that's what's going to push plant based meat and lab meat. Incidentally, it's not just the fringe that's investing in this. We've got Silicon Valley startups, Silicon Valley money, the kind of money that goes into tech companies is also behind Lab Meat, but it's not just the world of Silicon Valley and Looney, Northern California. Tyson Foods is also an investor in Lab Meat. I believe number one, two or three biggest global animal protein company, Tyson Foods is also putting money into Lab Meat. All right, I told you there's going to be less corn. I said, don't shoot the messenger. I'm giving you the business landscape as I see it. Remember, I've made a living for a long time crisscrossing North America, reading the paper, reading articles and magazines I didn't even agree with, watching our fellow humans and their habits. And this looks to me like corn is going to be continually on the outs. While we make the heck out of it and we love to talk about how many bushels we get out of an acre, there's going to be less demand for it because of these reasons. Now, don't fret. If you are sitting there in uh, central Illinois and you've got 220 bushel corn, 240 bushel corn type ground, you're probably going to grow corn because it's still a really good application. But what about the marginal acres? What about the places that are only growing like 80 bushels? What about those that require a tremendous amount of irrigation? Again, with environmental forces and the environmentalism that breeds politics, what if we end up then with less corn demand And then folks saying, why are we using all this water to make corn out here in western Kansas, where there's not even any rain for a product we don't even need? The livestock thing, the meat thing, the non-meat thing, the non-dairy, dairy dairy alternative, there's the processed food, there's the corn syrup, and then there's the realities of the ethanol. The economics are going to be a struggle, and the ongoing push for electric cars are going to be an issue. I know you're going to tell me all about, hey, man. Electricity didn't just come out of the, you know, air. Well, that's true. But again, ethanol doesn't create power. Ethanol doesn't create power for power plants, I should say. Corn doesn't make electricity. Coal still does, but economically, not very well either anymore. Because that's why the big uh, power generators are switching to natural gas. So I, I envision a, a changing world for corn. Corn's not going to go away. Marginal acres of corn will go away. Marginal land that's growing corn might end up being in grass. It might be for grass-fed lambs and and grass-fed beef. Some of these acres are going to start growing other products. Hemp, quinoa, kale. Grain sorghum seems to be popular at the foodies. You're saying, Damien, this isn't even realistic. Well, just bear in mind that until the 1950s, soybeans were not even really a viable economically significant product in the business of agriculture in the United States. So don't think that this is crazy talk. This could be the reality. Soybeans weren't really a thing until 50 to 70 years ago. Now look, there will be less corn. I'm Damian Mason. I talk about the business of agriculture. I gave you some reasons. I want you to think about it. If you agree or disagree, fine. Send me a message. I really appreciate you tuning in. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture.